This is the second of a two-part series chronicling the men and women who have performed the devoir of Secretary of State. If you haven't listened to part one, you may want to go back and do so, as I am going to jump right back into it where we left off. Let's talk about sex again. John Sherman was a U.S. representative and senator when he was brought on to Rutherford B. Hayes' cabinet as Secretary of the Treasury, where he put his name on the Sherman Antitrust Act. John then went back to the Senate, where he sought the Republican presidential nomination, ineffectually, three times. William McKinley invited Sherman onto his front office in 1897, where John butted heads with his assistant secretary, William Day, and McKinley himself, as Sherman opposed many of the president's foreign policies. In retaliation, many of Sherman's engagements were doled out to his underlings, primarily William Day, who bargained the annexation of Hawaii. Sherman did not support war with Spain or take over of Cuba and stood aside in protest four days into the Spanish-American War as the United States entered the world stage as a colonial power and his meddling assistant got into the driver's seat. William Rufus Day had been sharpening law in Ohio when he struck up a friendship with William McKinley as John Sherman threw in the towel. Day was immediately immersed right into the thick of the Spanish-American War. Having little diplomatic experience, he tried to keep Europe disinterested in the all-consuming conflict. Day vowed to pack his bags at the end of the war and submitted his notice following the signing of the 1898 peace treaty, where he got Spain to give up Guam, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines for $20 million, though he denounced the inclusion of the Philippines in the deal. He only acquired it at the behest of his good buddy William McKinley. Once out, William Day went back to sharpen law, but McKinley ennobled him to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and Teddy Roosevelt made him Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, where he sojourned for 20 years. The next Secretary of State, John Milton Hay, solicited votes as Abraham Lincoln's personal secretary. At the conclusion of the Civil War, John shifted his energy to diplomacy in Madrid, Paris, and Vienna, and penning a 10-volume composition about Lincoln. 26 years downstream, President McKinley asked Hay to be the ambassador to Great Britain in advance of William Day turning in his secretarial badge. As Secretary of State, Hay strived to keep China stable, was able to establish a boundary between Canada and Alaska, succeeded in signing the Entente allowing the U.S. to build the Panama Canal, and continued to deliver past the assassination of William McKinley and through his own demise under Theodore Roosevelt. Elihu Root from Clinton, New York, was a district attorney who had once been president of the U.S. Bar. William McKinley asked Root to be Secretary of War in 1899, a vocation he held even beyond McKinley's unfortunate date with a bullet. Elihu Root and his predecessor Milton Hay had carried on closely, and it seemed a fitting conversion. But Root 
did not fully subsume Roosevelt's ideas when it came to getting involved in other societies. One of his first missions on the clock was to take a goodwill tour of Latin America to relax nerves caused by American involvement in Panama's independence via the construction of the infamous canal. Elihu Root oversaw 24 arbitration treaties, including resolving an embroilment between Germany and France over Morocco, and restructured the State Department by instilling a system where diplomatic service members were rotated to different departments and domains to give them a more well-rounded knowledge of different regions of the world. I love this idea. Root renounced the travail to his secretary, Robert Bacon, for the final two months of Roosevelt's reign, so he could go back to being a U.S. senator. Alehu Root won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1912 for his international efforts. Robert Bacon was a good pal of Theodore Roosevelt's from his Harvard days. Degree in hand... Bacon toured the world and changed into a prominent Boston businessman, mediating matters for U.S. Steel and the Northern Securities Company. In Robert's short time as Secretary of State, he was able to ratify treaties to build the Panama Canal and get North America to talk about conservation. His successor, Philander Chase Knox, liked his policies so much that he made Bacon ambassador to France. Bacon fought in World War I under General Pershing, which proved to be quite a load on the old-timer. He kicked the bucket, hinder to the war's conclusion. Philander Knox was an aide to the U.S. District Attorney for Western Pennsylvania, and argued as a corporate lawyer when he transformed into president of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Knox was integral to establishing the U.S. Steel Corporation, having given counsel to the Carnegie Steel Company. Philander was another college buddy of William McKinley's who gave him the post of attorney general a profession he would retain under Roosevelt as well. In 1904, Knox filled a seat in the U.S. Senate and tried, in vain, to gain the presidential nomination for the Republicans. His consolation prize was Secretary of State given to him by the guy who did get the nomination, William Howard Taft. Philander Knox was able to take control of the Department of State and would accredit people based on their merit and past foreign service over being the president's former drinking buddy. Knox advocated the advancement of investments overseas and introduced the idea of dollar diplomacy, a combination of financial stability and democracy which was the plan of action for Latin America, the Caribbean, and Asia by the thinking that democratic governments automatically produced a free market and open trade. When William Taft miscarried the 1912 renomination, Knox reeled back to Pennsylvania law for four years, and then the U.S. Senate just in time to oppose the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I, dealing in this stature up to his quietus in 1921. William Jennings Bryan was a U.S. representative who pushed for a national income tax, silver coinage, and direct vote casting of senators. Ironically, he ran for Senate in 1894 and lost. So, he went back to Nebraska to be the editor for the Omaha World Herald. 
And within two years, he was given the Democratic Party's presidential nomination without ever having even announced that he was running. It was a battle lost. Jennings Bryan would be nominated twice more in the ensuing dozen years, but he could just never seal the deal. At the installation of Woodrow Wilson, wise old William Jennings Bryan was selected to be Secretary of State, only to abandon it halfway through. William handled many reconciliations in an effort to seem unprejudiced during the Great War and was the lead on the Bryan-Chamorro Treaty, allowing naval facilities in the Gulf of Fonseca and the Corn Islands. Bryan tried to get Wilson to outlaw U.S. citizens traveling to war zones as German submarines were making it impossible to remain dispassionate to the struggle. Wilson saw the sinking of merchant ships by submarines to violate the rights of a bystanding public and sent warning letters to Germany to allow uninvolved travelers safe passage abound the oceans. Bryan urged Wilson to also send messages to Britain for the neutral rights it also violated, but Wilson would not. So Brian quit and made another mark in history by acting as the opposing counsel to Clarence Darrow in the Scopes Monkey Trials. Robert Lansing was married to the daughter of Secretary of State John Foster and was the uncle to future Secretary of State John Foster Dulles as well as director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Robert endeavored at Lansing and Lansing Law Firm, where he fought cases on behalf of the U.S. government in international hearings. He backed the founding of the American Society and the American Journal of International Law. Postliminary to being the counselor of the Department of State and the ad interim secretary of state, he accepted the opening left by William Jennings Bryan. Robert formed his World War I policies while trying to keep non-belligerent for as long as possible and calling for freedom of the seas. Lansing soon agreed that the United States had to enter the war and advised Woodrow Wilson throughout the Paris Peace Conference. Robert also signed the Lansing-Ashihi Agreement, a large-scale deal between Japan and the United States in an open-door policy with China, but did not embrace the League of Nations and was unsympathetic to Wilson's lackadaisical presidential performance in the residuum of a stroke. Bainbridge Colby was a Republican member of the New York State Assembly who chose to defect the party in 1912, canvassing for his good pal Woodrow Wilson's re-election, who in turn put Colby on the shipping board. When Robert Lansing resigned in 1920, Colby directed the Department of State through the end of Woodrow Wilson's presidency, where he was unable to get the Versailles Treaty ratified by the Senate and argued against the U.S. entering the League of Nations. But he was able to improve relations south of the border in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution. Charles Evans Hughes had fought corruption as an attorney, heretofore being optated governor of New York. His next honor was being tapped for the Supreme Court by President Taft, only to stand down in order to gain the Republican Party presidential nomination to unseat Woodrow Wilson. Hughes took on Secretary of State at the request of Wilson's successor, 
Warren G. Harding, who hoped Charles could return the nation to normalcy post-World War I by limiting U.S. involvement in the League of Nations and ending the war with Germany via the Treaty of Berlin. Hughes functioned in this qualification past Harding's undue repose and the beginning of Calvin Coolidge's regime. But Charles Evan Hughes wasn't done with America yet because in 1930, President Herbert Hoover redetermined Hughes to the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, where he hearkened for 11 years. Frank Billings Kellogg started out as a lawyer in Minnesota, oftentimes as a representative for colossal manufacturing companies, but soon evolved to patronize Theodore Roosevelt's charge d'affaires with stern trust-busting efforts. Frank Kellogg was also president of the American Bar Association, altered to a U.S. senator, a delegate to the Pan-American Conference, and then ambassador to the Court of St. James, ere long serving Calvin Coolidge's time in office. As Secretary of State, he was active in enforcing parts of the Treaty of Versailles and the 1924 Dawes Plan that dealt with German reparations to Allied forces such as Belgium, France, and the United Kingdom. Frank broke the previous record held by William Jennings Bryan for signing over 80 treaties within the Western Hemisphere and earned a Nobel Peace Prize for dickering the Kellogg-Bryan Pact with France that renounced war as a tool to drive national policy. Kellogg stayed on as Secretary of State for the first three weeks of Herbert Hoover. Henry Louis Stimson was a partner at a legal firm once run by former Secretary of State Elihu Root. Stimson tried to gain the Republican candidacy for governor of New York in 1910 and fell flat, but would be brought on instead as William Howard Taft's Secretary of War who fought as a First World War colonel in the artillery. Henry occasionally officiated envoys to Latin America, extracted a fracas between Peru and Chile, and contracted an end to the Nicaraguan Civil War. Calvin Coolidge made Stimson the Governor General of the Philippines, and Herbert Hoover asked him to be Secretary of State. When Hoover blundered re-election, Henry yielded his seat, but would return to government as Secretary of War at the request of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and advised Harry Truman to use the atomic bomb in 1945. All the while, Cordell Hall of the Tennessee State Legislature pinned himself to the Republicans in the House of Representatives for 14 years, but when he lost his seat in 1920, he switched sides to chair the DNC, where he tried to lock down the Democratic nomination for vice president eight years later to no avail. In the interest of proving his new party loyalty, Hull subsided FDR for the governorship of New York and then presidency. Roosevelt returned the favor by giving Hull the honor of being the longest-serving Secretary of State in U.S. history, 11 years under FDR's unprecedented four terms. Roosevelt was quite controlling and hands-on when it came to foreign policy-making and would represent the United States at decisive conferences, tasking Cordell with stalling a war with Japan and China. Cordell was the first sitting Secretary of State to go to the International Conference of the American States proclaiming that the United States would polish a policy of non-intervention 
with nations in the Western Hemisphere. He was an advocate for free trade, believing it led to peace and prosperity because high tariffs are the roadblocks that were responsible for the Great Depression. Hull supported the United Nations and was given a Nobel Peace Prize for his help in creating it. Cordell retired owing to health reasons and was replaced with Edward Statinius Jr., a Chicago native, go Cubs, who technically could have seen the boys in blue win their first couple of World Series, though I have no confirmation that he did. Edward was the assistant of General Motors' vice president, but parted from GM in 1934 to carry on at U.S. Steel as chairman of the board within just two years. It was at this time Statinius started his political career, immersing himself in the War Resources Board and then serving on the advisory committee to the Council of National Defense. Edward had a short run of about six months as FDR's final Secretary of State and three months as Harry Truman's first. He was by Roosevelt's side at the Yalta Conference in 1945, where they met with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin to talk about war with Japan, the future of Eastern Europe, and Germany's eventual surrender. Statinius would be at the helm through the conclusion of World War II in Europe, interceding to form the United Nations, to which he would be the first U.S. ambassador, another post he would renounce because he felt Truman wasn't using the U.N. to soothe Soviet-American disquietude. Ed had forsaken government to rector at the University of Virginia for the final four years of his life. James Francis Burns was a district attorney in South Carolina and longtime congressman who supported FDR's New Deal and was upgraded to the Supreme Court in 1941, a billet he soon waived because he was thirsty for the action that could only be found in the legislative branch of government. When the U.S. entered World War II, Burns was placed as director of the Office of Economic Stabilization, Economic Mobilization, and also traveled with FDR to the Yalta Conference. When Roosevelt died, James retreated to South Carolina, but Truman summoned him back to Washington to be his Secretary of State, for which the Senate unanimously confirmed. Because Truman did not have confidence in his own knowledge of foreign policy, he put loads of trust into Burns. But this led to disagreements over how to deal with the Soviet Union, who continued to be less and less cooperative in the years serious of the war. James, too, advised Harry to drop the A-bombs on Japan and hostility between the two led Burns to bow out to make way for George Catlett Marshall, a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army who fought in both world wars, rose to the level of five-star general, Army chief of staff, and vacated as FDR's chief of staff. Truman needed Marshall's power of diplomacy post-war and brought him on as Secretary of State. George's name is attached to the illustrious Marshall Plan, which was a considerable World War II relief package for Western Europe. He also accommodated the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. While he always followed orders given by the President, he disagreed with Truman's recognition of Israel as a state, and surrendered Secretary of State in 1949 
to become the president of the American Red Cross instead. He, too, received a Nobel Peace Prize for restoring the economies of Europe. Dean Gooderham Acheson was a clerk for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis and employed with the Covington and Burling law firm, precedent to being the Undersecretary of Treasury in Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet, where he had oversight of the U.S. oil embargo on Japan. At the war's end, Dean roosted with the Truman Brass as Undersecretary of State and commandeered the obligation when George Marshall quit. Dean had much influence on U.S. foreign policy and a magnanimous relationship with Harry Truman, who would allow Acheson to be the first official to talk on record respecting U.S. foreign policy choices. It probably didn't hurt that Acheson was an advocate of the Truman Doctrine and NATO. While he diligently tried to restore Europe following the war, Dean was also encumbered with trying to answer questions about atomic weapons globally, the fall of China to the communists, and the rebuilding of Japan. Senator Joseph McCarthy blamed Acheson for losing China to the communists. Dean's next compulsion would be advising JFK in the thick of the Cuban Missile Crisis and LBJ on how to disengage from the Vietnam War. John Foster Dulles of New York was a Secretary of State who worked closely with the CIA, headed by his brother Alan Dulles, to achieve diplomacy. He was the grandson of Secretary of State John Watson Foster and was the nephew of yet another, Robert Lansing. You could say he was training for the engagement all of his life. John was in France for the 1919 Paris Peace Conference and believed that it was not a good idea to press reparation responsibilities on Germany for the First World War, adding that the country needed to support U.S. foreign policy. Dulles was a lawyer for the War Trade Board and was put in the Senate by New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey. He was good friends with President Eisenhower when he became Secretary of State, and the two men pushed to contain communism. Dulles was the first Secretary of State to have press conferences and was involved in the integration of Europe, settling the Hungarian Revolution, and forming the Eisenhower Doctrine to deal with the Suez Canal crisis of 1956, an event we covered briefly in our Halloween episode, so check that out. An aggressive cancer forced Dulles to hand over the office to Christian Herder. Christian was born in Paris, France, and educated there before his family moved to New York City. Herder delivered at the U.S. Embassy was secretary of the U.S. Commission to Negotiate Peace at the Paris Peace Conference and went on to be the personal assistant to the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who gave lectures at Harvard from time to time. Christian presented in the Massachusetts House of Representatives until he was moved up to a U.S. representative. Defending Harry Truman's Marshall Plan, that gave $13 billion of reconstruction aid to Europe after World War II. Herder was acting governor of Massachusetts when he was brought on as the second-to-last Secretary of State to Dwight D. Eisenhower. After his time there concluded, Herder continued as a trade interagent for both Presidents John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson. Dean Rusk was a captain of military intelligence as part of the War Department and got exalted to Deputy Chief of Staff in the Operations Division, 
Russ carried to completion several functions in the Department of State, but walked away from government service for the Rockefeller Foundation until he was Secretary of State for John Fitzgerald Kennedy, providing a foreign policy that made it easier for emerging democracies to get up to speed with modernity and lend a hand in establishing democracy. Rusk anesthetized anxiety from the Cuban Missile Crisis and accumulated the limited nuclear test ban treaty. Dean stayed on as Lyndon Johnson's Secretary of State, seceding in 1969 to teach international law at the University of Georgia and opening the Dean Rusk Center for International and Comparative Law. William Pierce Rogers was admitted to both the New York and Washington Bar, labored as Assistant District Attorney of New York County, and was a World War II Lieutenant Commander in the Navy. Ike Eisenhower asked him to be Deputy Attorney General, and soon the full-out Attorney General. William went back to his private practice for most of the 1960s, but Richard Nixon hailed him as Secretary of State. William procured a ceasefire in the Middle East, signed the 1973 Vietnam Peace Agreement, and began the process of digitizing diplomatic records. He won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in the same year, but did not keep his secretarial position. The responsibility for Nixon's second go as president fell on the shoulders of Henry A. Kissinger, born Heinz Alfred Kissinger in Germany, whose family had come to the United States in 1938 to escape anti-Semitism growing in his homeland. Heinz was Americanized to Henry. Passing into a naturalized citizen, he complied as a German interpreter to the U.S. Army in World War II and returning to earn a B.A. and Ph.D. from Harvard University. Kissinger joined the faculty as associate director of Harvard's Department of Government and Center for International Affairs. That must have been a long business card. For the next decade, he would advise many government agencies like the Department of State, the National Security Council's Operations Coordinating Board, and the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. Nixon brought Henry on as his national security advisor and thought Kissinger did such a bang-up job, he was then given the additional title as Secretary of State, the first person to do both simultaneously. He'd only been with it for two weeks when Egypt and Syria attacked Israel, prompting an airlift of U.S. military supplies to Israelis, which won the October War of 1973, but also led to the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries OPEC, to place an oil embargo on the U.S. that was eventually lifted thanks to the continued efforts of Heinz Kissinger. When Nixon terminated his presidency amongst the Watergate scandal, Kissinger stayed on under Gerald Ford to avoid disruptions in establishing relations with China, burying the hatchet in the Middle East, and settling a detente with the Soviet Union. Ford kept Kissinger as Secretary of State, but removed him from his security advisor duties. Cyrus Roberts Vance was enlisted in the Navy for a few years, and then recited law in New York City for a decade to prepare him for his entrance into politics. He made his way with the Department of Defense, serving as Secretary of Army to JFK, 
Secretary of Defense to Lyndon Johnson and initially supporting the Vietnam War, but would grow to oppose it and advise Johnson to withdraw troops. In 1969, Vance received the Presidential Medal of Freedom before he was called from the bullpen to pitch Secretary of State for Jimmy Carter. Cyrus was interested in garnering some kind of peace agreement between Israel and its Arab neighbors. He networked the Panama Canal Treaty, which gave control of the canal zone to Panama, and restored full diplomatic relations with China. Vance handed in his resignation in protest to Jimmy Carter's execution of the failed military rescue of American hostages being held in Iran. Did you see Argo? Cyrus went back to the discipline of law, but was asked to contribute to many diplomatic missions for the rest of his life via the United Nations. A string of substitutes would follow as Congress settled on World War II veteran Edmund Sixtus Muskie, who had gotten elected to the State House of Representatives upon his return from the war, and then Governor of Maine, U.S. Senator a handful of times, made an unsuccessful run for Vice President, and then a bid for President in 1972 that came up short, losing to Senator George McGovern. Edmund was Jimmy Carter's second Secretary of State for only nine months and would be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for cutting a deal for the release of U.S. hostages in Iran. Trailing his time as Secretary of State, Mr. Muskie went back to practicing law in Washington, D.C., and was essential to the Iran-Contra scandal investigation. Alexander Haig Jr. enjoyed a lucrative military career serving in both Korea and Vietnam. In 1962, he was employed at the Pentagon under then-Secretary of the Army Cyrus Vance and the Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and went on to be the military advisor to Henry Kissinger. And if that wasn't impressive enough, he was also chief of staff to both President Nixon and Ford, passed into the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe for five years, and all of this ahead of maintaining the Department of State for Ronald Reagan's first year and a half. Haig had his hands full for those 18 months with Soviets in Afghanistan, trade contentions between China and Taiwan, and the impact of an assassination attempt on President Reagan. His brief time as Secretary of State focused on strengthening the NATO alliance and gearing foreign policy priorities towards the Soviet Union. Walter Stossel Jr. held the title for 11 days, making a smooth changeover for George Pratt Schultz, a Princeton graduate of the U.S. Marine Corps Reserves who earned a Ph.D. in industrial economics from MIT and then taught economics at MIT and then the University of Chicago. George got involved in politics in 1969 when Nixon made him the Secretary of Labor, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and then Secretary of the Treasury. Five years later, he went back to private life and taught at Stanford University. As Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, he was most focused on the Cold War and the rise of the Soviet Union's new head honcho, Mikhail Gorbachev. Schultz was ineffectual in stopping the arms-for-hostages dealings with Iran that ended up funding the Contras in Nicaragua, but was able to calm frictions of the country's raging civil war. 
George Shultz gets noteworthy credit for ending the Cold War by the Agency of U.S. Diplomacy. James Addison Baker III drilled law for almost 20 years, getting involved in politics by way of his wife. James had been the chair of George H.W. Bush's dismal Senate contest, finance chairman to the Republicans, and pled Richard Nixon's re-election. When Tricky Dick flew the coop, Jerry Ford made Baker the Undersecretary of Commerce. So it is not surprising that he managed Ford's presidential campaign and function as Reagan's White House Chief of Staff. While immersed in Reagan's second four years, James Baker did double duty as the Secretary of Treasury and the Chairman of the President's Economic Council. He was paramount in the passage of the Plaza Accord in 1985, which lowered the deficit by devaluing the dollar, and pulling the economy out of recession. By the time George H.W. Bush was commander-in-chief, Baker was well-groomed to be the Secretary of State, which was good because when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, resulting in the Persian Gulf War, James was able to create the preeminent Coalition of Nations. He almost fulfilled the whole term when Bush upgraded him to the White House Chief of Staff. Succeeding his time as Executive Mansion personnel, James was the personal envoy of the UN Secretary General for Western Sahara, antecedently growing into the Republican co-chair of the Iraq Study Group to review United States guidelines. James Baker continues to oblige in matters involving U.S. foreign policy. Lawrence Sidney Eagleburger was a political analyst for Cuba and the U.S. Embassy in Yugoslavia. He was put on to the National Security Council right in front of serving as special assistant to the Undersecretary of State. Eagleburger attended Nixon with several assignments in different departments, like NATO, Secretary of Defense and National Secretary Affairs, and Executive Secretary to the Secretary of State. Jimmy Carter made Lawrence ambassador to Yugoslavia, and Reagan had him all over the State Department, which bled over into the Bush one years. When H.W. ran again, James Baker resigned the operation for the crusade and Eagleburger commandeered the role for just over a year, advising H.W. with Yugoslavia's turmoil caused by the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. Eagleburger also relieved Holocaust survivors with claim funds from insurance policies and pushed towards educating his team on the country of Iraq. Warren Minor Christopher of California made a comeback riding the wave through Jimmy Carter's time at the top. In his early years, Warren slogged as a clerk for Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas and assisted with many international treaties for the Department of State. LBJ made Christopher the Deputy Attorney General, and Carter made him Deputy Secretary of State and Chief Umpire to the Iran hostage crisis. In the early 1990s, Warren headed Bill Clinton's transition team and answered the purpose of Secretary of State where he urged Palestine, Jordan, and Israel to sign the Oslo Accords, pushed for NATO's spread to the old Soviet bloc nations, got Clinton to start relations with Vietnam again, and was efficacious in ending the Bosnian War. Warren would be succeeded by the first woman Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, whose actual name 
is Marie Jean Madlenka Corbell. Born in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and daughter of ambassador to Yugoslavia, Joseph Corbell, her family moved to Denver, Colorado in the wake of a communist coup in 1948. Madlenka decided to Americanize her name to Madeline when she converted to a U.S. citizen. She received a B.A. from Wellesley College and earned a Ph.D. in public law and government from Columbia University. From there, she would assist Senator Edmund Muskie and the National Security Council in the Carter administration. Albright was a research professor for international affairs, director of the Women in Forest Service program at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, and in 1993, ambassador to the United Nations when Bill Clinton called on her to be Secretary of State. She successfully widened NATO's presence into bloc nations of the fallen USSR, assisted in solving the humanitarian atrocities taking place in Kosovo, and the Kyoto Protocol on Global Climate Change. Colin Powell is one of my favorite secretaries of state, and his story is truly inspiring. Born in Harlem, New York, to Jamaican immigrants, he attended City College of New York and began his service in the military as a consequence of ROTC. Powell was a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army and inhabited the department for 35 years, including two tours of Vietnam, Deputy National Security Advisor and National Security Advisor under Ronald Reagan, and then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under George H.W. Bush, where he was in charge of Operation Desert Storm. Powell was unanimously confirmed by the Senate as the first African-American Secretary of State under George W. Bush. Colin was adamant about using sanctions instead of force in troubled areas of Iraq and sought to reform the Department of State's organizational procedures and resources. But most of his time was centered on the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Powell was in support of quick military action directed at al-Qaeda and called for full cooperation from Pakistan and Afghanistan, but his attentions got shifted to Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and weapons of mass destruction, which Powell had been informed were regnant to Hussein's stockpile of weapons. He also worked to stop production of nuclear arms in Iran and North Korea, and was able to get Libya to give up its weapons program. Powell stepped down in 2004, but continues to serve his fellow countrymen as a member of the Board of Directors of the Council of Foreign Relations, the Powell Center at the City College of New York, and the Eisenhower Fellowship Program. And pursuant to the first African-American Secretary of State was the first female African-American Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. Condi was a professor of political science at Stanford, which saw her too advising the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then directing of the Soviet and East European affairs on the National Security Council. George W. Bush brought her on as the National Security Advisor, where she proved herself quite capable. Rice was all about transformational diplomacy, which sent U.S. diplomats to areas plagued by political and social woes to tackle issues like drug smuggling, disease, and human trafficking. She opened Gaza for fringe crossings, transacted suspensions of hostilities between Hezbollah forces in Lebanon and Israel, continued trying to solve the Israeli-Palestinian two-state problem, and supported Iranian sanctions, forcing the end of its uranium enrichment program. 
Her biggest success as Secretary of State was securing civil nuclear trade between the United States and India. And she's probably available to tutor right now, but I imagine her hourly rate has got to be bonkers. Hillary Clinton became the third female Secretary of State and is a Yale Law School graduate who acted as an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas School of Law and was brought in to indulge the board of the Legal Services Corporation under President Carter. She spent some years as First Lady of Arkansas, taking on many responsibilities, fighting for education, families, and children. Clinton easily realigned into the First Lady of America when Bill was elected president. As FLOTUS, she visited over 80 countries to speak out for human rights, democracy, and civil society. Hillary historically commented, quote, Human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights, end quote. Hillary matured as the first first lady to be elected to the Senate, where she was involved with several committees like the Armed Services Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, the Budget Committee, the Select Committee on Aging, and the Environment Public Works Committee. She was re-elected in 2006 and took a stab at the Democratic nomination for president in 2008 against Barack Obama, who then nominated Hildog to be the 67th Secretary of State. I don't think I have to tell you anything you don't already know about the 2016 presidential election, so let's just make something up. Did you know Hillary Clinton wrestled a rhinoceros to the ground with her bare hands and suing the loss? Believe it if you like. I know I will. John Forbes Carey earned a B.A. in political science from Yale before joining the Naval Reserve to give orders on a South Vietnam fast patrol craft, or swift boat, and managed to accrue three Purple Hearts in addition to both the Silver and Bronze Star medals. Consequent to his return to the States, John joined the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, VVAW, and testified at the 1971 Fulbright hearings in front of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs about the deplorable situation in Vietnam and the unconscionable actions and war crimes committed by soldiers. The following day, VVAW staged a protest in front of the Capitol building where Vietnam vets took their medals and threw them over the heavily guarded chain-link fence that had been quickly erected. As Kerry threw his, he said, quote, I'm not doing this for any violent reasons, but for peace and justice, and to try to make this country wake up once and for all. End quote. Quite a turn of events that he would one day be legislating in that very zuggernaut, serving in the Senate for nearly 30 years where he participated in the Iran-Contra hearings by fingering Colonel Oliver North for arming Nicaraguan rebels, known as Contras. North was eventually convicted of three felonies that were ultimately overturned. John Kerry and another Vietnam veteran senator, John McCain, were able to convince Bill Clinton to normalize relationships with Vietnam and in 2004 teamed up with another Vietnam John, John Edwards, to challenge the incumbent George W. Bush for his presidency only to be soundly defeated by 35 electoral votes. While Kerry supported the takedown of Saddam Hussein, he did release the statement, quote, Mr. President, do not rush to war. 
take the time to build the coalition. Because it's not winning the war that's hard, it's winning the peace that's hard. End quote. When no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq, Kerry spoke out, saying, quote, When the President of the United States looks at you and tells you something, there should be some trust. End quote. Obama overlooked John Kerry as a running mate and Secretary of State in 2008, despite Kerry's endorsement of the rising star. Kerry even helped Barack get reelected by playing the part of Mitt Romney in a mock debate, securing his position as the 68th Secretary of State. He was the first Secretary of State to meet with his Iranian doppelganger in 34 years and shook hands with the Nigerian president at his inauguration. When asked if Syrian President Bashar al-Assad would be able to avoid a military confrontation for a chemical weapons attack on his own citizens, Kerry responded in an off-the-cuff manner. Quote, He could turn over every single bit of his chemical weapons to the international community in the next week. Turn it over. All of it. Without delay. And allow a full and total accounting for that. But he isn't about to do that, and it can't be done, obviously. End quote. Except that's exactly what Assad did. Serendipity. John signed the Paris Climate Accords in 2016 and is the only Secretary of State in U.S. history to have visited Antarctica. He did not attend Trump's inauguration, but instead joined the Women's March on Washington, D.C. Donald Trump began his reign with Rex Tillerson of Texas, who was recommended by Condoleezza Rice and chosen over David Petraeus and Mitt Romney. Many voted down this nomination. In 1988, he was responsible for Exxon's affairs in Russia and the Caspian Sea and evolved to CEO of ExxonMobil between 2006 and when he joined the Trump dynasty just four months premature of retiring and missing out on a $180 million pension. Rex is an Eagle Scout, and from 2010 to 2012, he was the national president of the Boy Scouts of America. The following year, he was given the Order of Friendship from Vladimir Putin, for his role in the energy sector. Rex continued to make deals between Exxon and Putin in Russia, preferring not to enforce Russian sanctions. It has been said that Tillerson, quote, has had more interactive time with Vladimir Putin than probably any other American, with the exception of Dr. Henry Kissinger, end quote. According to Rex, Trump told him to, quote, stabilize the relationship with Russia and build trust, end quote. Supposedly, in an October 2017 meeting, Trump was talking about adding to the U.S. nuclear arsenal, and Rex either called the president a, quote, moron or a, quote, fucking moron. Many senior foreign service officers quit under his leadership. Trump relieved Tillerson via tweet March 13, 2018, making his secretarial time one of the shortest ever, 405 days, and one of the poorest. He is the first secretary of state to be fired since 1945. John J. Sullivan was the deputy secretary under Tillerson, assuming the role on April 1st, 2018, before Mike Pompeo stepped in. Mike graduated first in his class from West Point, joined the Army for five years in advance of being upgraded to captain, 
and passing through Harvard Law School, the House of Representatives, and director of the CIA. Pompeo supports NSA surveillance and keeping Guantanamo Bay open. His views on energy are, quote, Federal policy should be about American family, not worshiping a radical environment agenda, end quote. Mike is not keen to regulating greenhouse emissions and voted against a climate tax, saying wind power tax credits are, quote, an enormous government handout, end quote. A lifetime member of the NRA, he is in opposition to same-sex marriage and the requirement to label foods that contain GMOs. Instead, he believes that, quote, Jesus Christ as our Savior is truly the only solution for our world, end quote. And also that politics is a, quote, never-ending struggle until the rapture, end quote. And that is a hard one to argue with. I pray for America. And there it is, everybody. That is all the secretaries of state. Now, if you are like me and get annoyed at the fact that Scatter Curiosity's episodes take so long to get out, well, you can follow us on Twitter at Albert Einstone for daily curiosities. We'll see you next time. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show